Genesis 3. So as we get to part two here, we started last week in our, in our four-week Advent series, One Story, One Savior, as we get to part two of what we're calling God's grand redemptive narrative or story, we come to the place where everything just breaks down. We've come to that part in the story where everything breaks down for the entire human race. And what's significant about this particular breakdown is that it's so much worse than we realize. It's so much worse than we realize. Now, this was some years ago now, um, but uh, I remember there was this time where where I was getting ready to leave for a few hours, and, uh, and Melissa, Big M, my wife here in the front, she, uh, she said, hey, I got this new toilet paper holder that I'm going to uh, install. And I said, perfect, I'm leaving, you can do that. That sounds like an awesome plan to me. And yeah, believe it or not, pastors and their wives, they, they have toilet paper holders. It's, it's funny how that works, right? We're just like you guys, right? Us Weekly Magazine, we're just like you. Um, so anyway, so she, she, she starts installing this, I'm gone, I get a text, and she said, you know, it's not going that great. You know, the, the hole that I was trying to put in to get it in there, it's, you know, it's kind of, there wasn't anything behind it, so it's, it's getting a little messy, but I think I got it. I said, great, great. You know, so I got home a couple hours later to see Melissa on the ground, in the bathroom, crying with at least a quarter of the wall just holed up all over the place, Right? And um, I did like what any good husband does. I said, babe, I grabbed the toilet paper holder. I said, it's okay. I'll call a guy. We'll, we'll, get, some, we'll get somebody in, right? Because you guys know Big R doesn't do home improvements. I think that's been established. It's in the church documents somewhere, actually, right? It was so much worse than I thought it was going to be when I came home that day just dreaming of our new toilet paper holder, but all of us can relate. That's a very flippant example of, of ways that all of us can relate as we recall things in our life that ended up being far worse than we thought. You know, and you just kind of go down the line, right? For some of us, man, we just, we've had mechanical issues that have really put our finances at a disadvantage, man. Maybe we had a car or something in our house break down and now we're faced with a bill. It was worse than we thought. For some of us, it's our financial status, we thought we were going to make a particular amount of money or we were going to have a job that was going to provide us with something that was going to carry us. And at some point, that ends. It was much worse than we thought. For some of us, it's way more serious than that. For some of you today, it's more serious than that. It's a, maybe it's a medical diagnosis where, man, you weren't feeling very great and uh, some things started to change. You went and you got a report and everything ended up being much worse than you thought. Now listen, nobody except for the blindest of optimists can argue with the reality that things break, right? Things break, things run down, things that are new grow old, all right? The reason we have, the reason why we even have this word called maintenance is because when things aren't properly taken care of, they naturally fall into disrepair. Like none of you guys are gonna argue with me about that. Seriously, just look around you. Come back from vacation after a week, and what are you going to see? Your plants are dead, there's cobwebs everywhere, it smells musty, and your cat has like destroyed every piece of furniture that you owned. Spend a few days without showering and look in the mirror, and it's like a horror movie has come to life, right? Here's what happened to me as recently as Friday night, all right? Casey and I, we were, we were cleaning up here, and I bent over to pick something up, and I was like, dude, that that hurts. And he said, 
does it? And I said, yeah, it does, Mr. Youthful. It, it hurts. But this brings up these questions for us, doesn't it? That things go into disrepair. Why do they? Why do things fall so easily into pain? Why do things fall so quickly into ruin? Well, the Apostle Paul kind of tells us about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. He says this. He says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He goes on to say this, for we know that the whole creation, that includes us, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So what Paul is saying is creation is longing to be set free from something, to be set free from the bondage of sickness and decay and death. It's groaning like someone who is in the pains of childbirth. And so in our groaning, what happens is questions surface. Questions surface in our minds about all kinds of things. We call all kinds of things into question when we look around and we see things not going the way we think they should go. It calls into question the character of God, right? We talked about that last week. If God is good, why do bad things happen? It calls into question this idea of what we deserve and what we think we're entitled to. And I don't feel like I deserve these things that are happening to me. And we ask why, why we experience the kind of sickness and pain that we do. We ask why innocent human beings are faced with unanswerable dilemmas. We ask these questions. And the most famous of all these questions, if we want to just sum them all up, is why do bad things happen to good people? How many of you guys have been, ever been asked that or, or thought that? One of you. Thanks, Rick Tursky. The only honest guy in the... In, okay. Kami Smith. I always, always honest. But, how, but how, how much have we heard that question being brought up if it hasn't even subconsciously popped up and ourselves, which is why do bad things happen to good people? So today what we're going to try to do is discover two ground-breaking truths to help answer that question as we consider what happened in Genesis 3, which is known as the fall or, or the rebellion of mankind. The first one is this. We are far worse sinners than, than we think. We are far worse sinners than we think. But then there's number two. We are far more loved than we can possibly imagine. And that's what we're going to be driving at this morning. So before we get into the fall, what is the fall? How do we define the fall? Well, the fall is the second act in God's divine and redemptive drama, which again, we started last week. This was the moment when God's image-bearing creatures committed cosmic treason against God, their creator. It was the moment in history when sin entered the world through one man named Adam, when he traded the worship of God, to essentially worship himself. It was the first time a lie was believed and acted upon as if it was actually the truth. So we're going to cover these four movements of the fall. Number one, our rebellion. Number two, the result of our rebellion. Number three, God's response to our rebellion. And then finally, our response to God's Action. Now remember what we did last week. This is what we learned. We learned that God created all things, that everything God created was good, and that God created man to be image bearers of his goodness. 
So this is what we were kind of looking at, right, before we get to where we're at today. Adam and Eve, man, they had it made. They had something that none of us have experienced. They lived in this garden paradise. They enjoyed perfect communion with God. They enjoyed unspoiled marital bliss with one another. They enjoyed a clothing optional lifestyle. That's as far as I'm gonna go with that one, and yeah, I don't know. What happened? What happened to all of that? Well, what happened was our rebellion. Let's pick up Genesis chapter three. I'm gonna go through verse six. And it says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Let's just stop right there for right now. So we start with our rebellion and what came out of this rebellion? What was introduced into our systems was three things, doubt, desire, and disobedience, right? We see right there in verse three, in, in chapter three, verse one, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts. And he says to the woman, did God actually say? So this first act in this, in this second redemptive act of divine drama was that doubt was introduced. So we talked about this last week. One of the things that sin does is it calls us to doubt God's goodness. It calls us to stand back and look and go, wait, did God really say what he said? And did it is what he said the very best thing for me and for my life and for my family and for my career and for my future? So what Eve experienced there is what we experience in our fallen state, which is we experience doubt. We doubt that what God says is actually the thing that's going to bring us our greatest fulfillment, our greatest joy, our greatest happiness, our greatest peace. We stand back and we go, I'm not sure about that, God. I mean, I, I, get, I, I get what you've been doing here through scripture and throughout history, but right now, in this particular moment, in this particular situation, what I'm saying is, I don't know. I question that. That was introduced back in Genesis chapter three, doubt. And then there was desire. Now remember, Adam and Eve, they had a perfect desire. They desired to worship God. They desired to obey God. Their desires hadn't been stained by sin until the serpent introduced doubt into the mind and heart of Eve, and she saw that the tree was good for food. But what did God just say? He said, don't touch it. He said, it ain't. That's my paraphrase. It ain't good for food. It's not good for anything. But in that moment, Eve had a desire rise up in her heart that said, but wait a minute, why? Why is it not good for food? Why is God telling me not to do something that my desire now is compelling me to do? And that's what happens 
in our sin. That's sort of how the birth of sin gets flushed out through us. We have doubts, our desires change, and then it turns into disobedience. What happened in verse 6? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, I mean, she could eat it, right? But when she saw that it was good for food and that it was a delight to what? The eyes. And that the tree was what? To be desired to make one wise. To give her something that God said, you don't get to have. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her checked out in the back watching the Ohio State game husband while Eve is being tempted. And what does Adam do? Well, Adam becomes the very first passive man who doesn't protect his wife, who takes that fruit and becomes the man responsible for the downfall of the human race. It was doubt, desire, and disobedience. This is what R.C. Sproul refers to as a man committing cosmic treason against God. In their rebellion, Adam and Eve, man, they even tried to cast blame as you get in later down the chapter. But it was so much worse than they could even imagine. They had to take responsibility for their actions. They couldn't blame anybody else for their doubts and their desires and their disobedience. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, in his book, he describes the process of sin like this. In James 1, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, right? So do you see some of the ways that maybe Adam and Eve could have gone into the garden and said, well, why'd you even have the tree there, God? Why'd you even provide that as a temptation? You know, what, I mean, what kind of willpower did you create us with? Well, kind of all the willpower that they needed. But James here reminds us that God doesn't tempt anybody, for God cannot be, it says, tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But this is how it happens, James says. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Dude, that's heavy. Right? We talk about sin every week. It's substance. If we didn't, we wouldn't really be a real church. But that's it right there. That's big right there. I remember when I was about 11 years old, I remember asking my dad, Dad, people are basically good, right? And, and one of the encouraging things about that, and which reminds me of my dad's own theology, was that he looked at me and he said, nobody's good, son. I don't know what he said. He said, no, absolutely not. He goes, that's exactly the opposite of what scripture tells us. But if people were basically good and if that were true, why then have we never found any examples of people in societies that flourish in this sinless uncorrupted state of culture. Why do we never see people or societies living in this unified, utopian bliss? Well, the truth is because we can't. The truth is that we lack ability. The truth is that because of sin, which is, let me define sin, which is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature, that sin is part of our inherited DNA, that's what we see right here. Now listen, this is what it means. It means that we are not sinners because we sin. It means that we sin because we're sinners. It's the result of something intrinsic 
in us. And this is what's called, this is a, this is a doctrinal point that's called original sin. David, the, the, uh, the king, David uh, laments in Psalm 51. This is what he says. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, he says. And in sin did my mother conceive me. It's all there, right in the beginning. Because of Adam's rebellion, we are born in what's called total depravity and total inability. What's total depravity? It's this. Every part of our being is affected by sin. Our intellects, our emotions and desires, our hearts, our goals, our motives, and even our physical bodies. Why does everything run down? Well, because sin has made it so, because God declared that when sin entered the world, death entered with it. So we are faced with total depravity. Two, total inability. Not only do we as sinners lack any spiritual good in ourselves, but we also lack the ability to do anything that will in itself please God and the ability to come to God in our own strength. And how important is it for us to know these things? How important is it for us to know that the bad news is that God hates sin? That the bad news is that sin brings death? It's important to know that bad news because without that bad news, there is no good news. Because the good news is that God loves sinners and he gives grace to those who are dead in their sins. Go back to chapter two, verse 17. Look what God declared when he was laying it out for Adam and Eve. This is what he says in verse 17. Let's go back to 16. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. So does that mean God doesn't want us to enjoy any of his creation? No, 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 God said, eat of all the trees. There was probably like, I don't know, a lot of trees, right? He said, eat of all the trees, 17 but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And what does he say? Because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Originally, what God told Adam and Eve is that the day they ate the fruit, they would die. But in fact, they didn't die the day they ate the fruit. God didn't end the narrative at act number two. He gave us instead what we don't deserve, which was grace. Right at the very beginning, we were given grace. Let this help you today. Some of you feel that you cannot come back from your sins because they've been so great and the damage has been so vast. And that might be true. On the flip side, I need you to hear me. Some of you minimize your sin and don't believe you've been that bad, right? You're like me. You grew up in the church. You grew up in church culture where everyone told you how great you were all the time. But this is what's so interesting about Adam's sin is that it doesn't look incredibly evil, does it? Adam's sin doesn't look so incredibly evil. Who did he hurt, right? Well, as long as I'm not hurting anybody. Who did Adam hurt? The dude ate a piece of fruit for crying out loud. This was the fall of humanity? Some guy got a little hungry for an apple? It's that? No, it's not that. 
It wasn't Adam's dipping his hand in the cookie jar, right? It was rebellion against God's good and loving commands. That was the fall. That's why no matter how big or small your sin, it originates from a heart that was conceived in sin and fails to conform to God from birth. And because God is holy, the Bible tells us he can't tolerate that. He can't be in the presence of sin. So our sin tells us something about ourselves. It also tells something about the majesty and the greatness and the holiness of God and why sin is so offensive to him. Do you see what that does? Do you see what the fall tells us on one level? It tells us how ginormous and how holy and how pure God is. So the first act was our rebellion. Secondly, what was the result of our rebellion? Well, three things. Salvation by works, separation from God, and then sin and death. Ronnie, didn't you just cover those things? Yeah, we're going to do it again right now. Salvation by works. You look at verse 7. They knew that they were naked. Now shame has entered the equation. Now guilt has entered the equation. And what happens? They sow fig leaves together, it says, to cover themselves. So the very first response, just like us, that mankind has to their sin is, what can I do to cover it? Because I know when God comes walking again in the cool of the garden, he's gonna see something in us. Isn't it strange that they knew that God would know? They knew that God would know. And they tried to cover their nakedness And we look at that and we go, oh my gosh, that's so ridiculous, you guys. Like we're looking at this narrative, standing back from it, going, that's insane. Well, like God doesn't have infrared vision, like you can't see behind your loincloth, Adam. But we do the same thing, don't we? We do the same thing because one of the ramifications, one of the effects of our sins is salvation by works. I can cover this. God won't know. And if he knows, as long as he doesn't see me the way I don't think he can see me or the way I hope he doesn't see me, then everything will be okay. And then that led to separation. You look at verse 23. What happened? Well, God had to banish them. Therefore, the Lord sent him out from the Garden of Eden. There was a separation. God's original design for Adam and Eve, which was to flourish in his presence, in worshipful presence, perfection that got tainted and so we had to let them go from the place that he originally created because everything was going to start decaying and then that led to sin and death and so you know what happens after this if you go from genesis all the way till we get to the book of matthew all you see is just a path of just destruction man like nothing goes right right you start with cain and abel the sons of adam and eve in genesis 4 5 It says Cain was very angry at Abel because God accepted Abel's sacrifice because Abel was doing it out of the right motives. Cain wasn't. God accepted Abel's sacrifice. It says Cain was angry. And it says his face fell. His face fell. And what does it result in? Him becoming so angry and so out of control that he ends up murdering his brother Abel. All of that was possible now because directionally, That's where our hearts move. And then after that, you get into Genesis 5 where we see this genealogy. 
And it's talking about all the descendants of Adam and Eve. And as you go through these genealogies, you just think, Ronnie, that's the part I skip, right? I know, but it's interesting when you get to the end of everybody's little genealogy when they've lived 963 years, what does it say? It says, and he died. This wasn't something that existed before Genesis 3. Death had entered the equation. Then you get to Genesis 6, and it said the wickedness of man was so great that God had to flood the earth. So wickedness had been just had grown to a place where that God couldn't tolerate it anymore, and he had to wipe mankind off from the face of the earth with the exception of eight people, Noah and his family. And then after Noah is saved and delivered from the flood, all of his generations after that, we see in Exodus 1 verse 14, we see his children's children's children end up going into slavery. We see the Egyptians enslaving the people of God that God had chosen from Abraham, who he had raised up to be his chosen people. And we see these people, his chosen people, because of sin, because of the result of all this fallenness, end up going into slavery. And then we get all the way into the judges as we get into the middle of the Old Testament where where God rose up men and women to judge and to help bring order to the society of the Israelites because this is what it says. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They served other gods. And it says this, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That just brings you back to Adam and Eve. It's not shocking. It's not new because Adam and Eve, what were they doing when they sinned? They were doing what was right in their own eyes. And then all of a sudden, God starts raising kings up for the children of Israel. And these kings, many of them, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And it goes so on and so forth. We get into the prophets who prophesied to the children of Israel saying, if we don't repent of our sins, if we don't turn from our evil ways, if we don't turn from our wickedness, God is going to judge us. And God did judge them. And so we see a pattern here from Genesis 3 all the way to Matthew where there is nothing but sin and death. In the midst of that sin and death, though, God would raise up men. God would raise up women that stood for the Lord, that obeyed the commands of the Lord, that found themselves in wicked and evil and corrupt societies. And they would say, no, 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 let's go back to obeying the commands of the Lord. And we see that when that happens, when we live in societies, when we develop cultures that actually follow the ways of God, that actually obey the commands of God, even at a general level, what we experience is some measure of peace in our societies. And so we see that as we step through Genesis all the way to Matthew. So this is what this tells us, all right? We have not evolved. We have not evolved. What we see after the fall is that men and women do not have hearts that are naturally inclined to loving, worshiping, and obeying God. What we see is that the sin of Adam infected all who were born after him. And the result is separation. And it's separation that leads to devastation of life, where sin rules, death, and suffering follow. Ronnie, is this supposed to bum me out? Yeah, it it is. 
Because without forgiveness of sin, you are a walking offense to God. Because without grace, sin is consuming you and death has assumed you. You're like Cain. You're like the children of Israel. You only do what's right in your own eyes and you only have the ability to do what's right in your own eyes. You are consumed by sin. And you know what? Sin is not graded on a bell curve. It isn't. Here's an example for you. Picture two people standing at the top of a volcano. All right? Okay, a Christmas volcano since it's Advent. One person, one dude is in swim trunks and says, you know what, I, I like the heat because when I look down, it looks like a hot tub and I'm gonna dive in, right? The other person standing up there is wearing protective sunglasses. He has a fireproof bodysuit on. He feels like he's all set up. He thinks it looks hot, but I've come prepared. They both jump in, what happens? They both die. Who said that? Yes, they are both consumed by the lava. The result of our rebellion is that we are consumed by sin. But God's grace consumes our sin. So listen, whatever your past, as the world's most outwardly sinful sinner, or as the world's most smug, inwardly self-righteous sinner, God's all-consuming grace is the only effective stain removal available. Have you ever walked through the day with a stain on your clothing? Or you've had like ketchup or something on your face and you finally look in the mirror and you're humiliated, right? But your humiliation turns to anger because you're thinking back to all the friends you thought you had and wondering why they never mentioned it. It's insane, right? This happens between me and my wife all the time, right? Like I thought we liked each other. Why didn't you tell me? God is your friend if you believe what he's telling you right now about your sin. God is your friend. So this brings us to point three, which is God's response to our rebellion. I'm just gonna read some scripture verses here that tell us how God responded graciously to our rebellion. Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God talking to Eve. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is known actually as the first gospel, the first glimpse of good news, the first promise that God was making that someday he would redeem all things. Isaiah 9, verse 6, Isaiah was one of God's prophets to the children of Israel. He prophesied this. He said, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God was saying, somebody is coming. Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. God responds to our rebellion with redemption. Matthew 1 says she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And all this, it says, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So this is the reason for Christmas. Paul tells us in Romans 5, he says, for while we were still weak at the right time, God died for the ungodly. 
He says God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, while we were trying to tie those loincloths on, Christ died for us. Don't miss the while we were yet sinners part. Because listen, God was perfectly just to end the story right there. But he didn't. He decided to expand what should have been a drama in two parts to a drama in four parts. So that was God's response to our rebellion. And finally, what's our response? How do we rightly respond to God's action? Well, it's pretty simple. And as much as it's simple, it's very difficult for us. Because the simple part, the word, what I'm going to tell you right now is simply this. It's repentance. Our response to God's action is repentance first and foremost. It's a return to the trust that has been broken. And trusting God means believing how fallen you really are and also how loved you really are. See, it's both of those things. It's both of those truths working in conjunction with one another. We are worse sinners than we think, but we are more loved than we can possibly imagine. Did you hear what I just read with God's response to our rebellion? For a God that didn't have to do any of that, that should have just destroyed Adam and Eve the day they ate the fruit. And then, I don't know, he could have started over, he could have done whatever he wanted. But he let this narrative continue. He let the narrative continue. Because you'd think it would be the opposite, don't you? If you're like me, you think it should be the opposite. If you were God, it would be. You'd try to make everybody feel better about themselves. It's not that bad, you're not that bad. You're a really good person which shows the depth of your depravity and my depravity. But the fall tells us that we can only feel better about ourselves when we face, when we finally face the truth about ourselves. So we ask this question, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, you know what we do with a question like that? We reframe it. We refrain that question for ourselves and for others who ask that question. So it's not why do bad things happen to good people, it's why do good things happen at all? On the day you eat of the fruit, it's over. It wasn't over. Why do good things happen at all? So, as we end, where do you find yourself as you contemplate this narrative? Where do you find yourself as we go through the fall here? Again, let me repeat this. Some of you feel you can't come back from your sin because it's been so great. The damage has been so vast. You feel crushed under this heavy weight. Or you feel like, man, I'm suffering these things. It must be because of all the bad things that I've done. It must be because God's punishing me. Maybe you've prayed, but you don't feel like anything ever lifts. It's hard for you to believe that God would ever forgive you. Well, if that's you and you're like me, then we need to read Psalm 130. We need to believe Psalm 130, which is when we cry from the depths, the Lord hears us and he forgives us. And that forgiveness is more sure than even the possibility of the sun rising in the morning. So you need to feel 
comfort and you need to feel assurance. And you also need to remember that when you don't feel assurance, it doesn't mean that your salvation is any less sure. Because our feelings are not what moves the heart of God. Thank God. Right? And then finally, on the flip side, some of you, some of you minimize your sin like I do. Some of you don't believe you've been that bad or you're simply apathetic this morning. You're just inwardly rolling your eyes. You're like, this dude's already at 36 minutes. This is insane. I thought this was one of those churches where the sermons were short. The service was all tucked in and contained. We're not like that. I don't know who told you that. It's not like that at all here. In a lot of ways, you're like a person who has never stopped eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You're someone who's never stopped living out your own desires. You continue to fool yourself into believing that your path is more desirable, believing the lie. God didn't really mean what he said, like he wasn't that serious. Well, for you and for me, we need to read and believe James 4, 7, where James tells us, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You're allowed to call names in the Bible. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Because here's what happens in all of our lives, every second of every minute of every hour of every day. Your story and my story always leads to a savior. The question is, what savior? What savior? How many times have you chosen? Just think about this for a second. How many times have you just, even on a very basic level, chosen the wrong solution to a problem? I remember one time I was out in the desert. I rode motorcycles when I was a kid. My bike got a flat. I changed the flat, and it wasn't easy, right? It's not a bicycle tire. I changed the flat five times. I'd start riding and it would go flat again. I mean, dude, that tube, all the patches on that tube were crazy. I kept patching and patching the tire. It kept letting out the air. What did I need? A new tube. I needed a new tube. That's some of you. You just keep repatching things. You keep repatching the same sins over and over and over again. And you haven't received the repentance and the freedom from God that you are a new creation. That your sins are in the past. That the old has passed away. That the new has come. Because that's your reality. For those of you like me who are worse sinners than you can even imagine but are more loved than you can possibly imagine. I'm gonna to end today with Romans 6. This is Paul's letter to Rome, and this is what he said, and I hope this encourages us this morning as we consider our sin, but even more than that, we consider our Savior who is there to forgive and give us more grace and give us mercy upon mercy. This is what it says, Romans 6, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, for the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, you also, you, Substance Church, also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Since you are not under law, but under grace. And this brings us back to Isaiah when he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, for your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. So there is a reality today for us who are far worse sinners than we know, but far more loved than we could possibly imagine. It means all of those things in your life, all of those sins that you fall back into, that you fight against, that you struggle, all of the pain and the sickness that continues to ravage our bodies, that continues us to allow us to groan with the aches and the pains, and the confusion that enters your mind because you don't know why these things are happening, we know why these things are happening. But we're not without hope when these things are happening because God didn't end the drama at Act 2. And next week we're going to learn just what he did and the effects of the son he sent for us so that we would not remain fallen forever, but instead we would have a hope that would last forever. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you that you give us hard words so that we might have soft hearts. So Lord, wherever we might be at today, we are all sinners that are in need of grace. Whether our sin is crushing us, whether the weight of it is just smothering us right now, or whether we are so dismissive of it, what we learn is that we desperately need your grace because we're lost. We're lost without Christ and without the cross. So God, remind us of that as we now take your bread and your cup and are reminded of what is needed to nourish our bodies, what was needed for our souls to come alive again. And Lord, we thank you that though the wages of sin were death, you gave us the gift of God, which was Christ, so that we didn't have to pay those wages. Thank you for paying our sin. And Lord, I pray that that comfort would just wash over us today. In Jesus' name, amen.